and welcome to another episode of Science in Podcast, presented by Science in Pictures Magazine. As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Madison Dix, here with our other co-host, Jared Adelman. That's him. That's me. Uh, we are attempting, as per usual, to take the headache out of peer-reviewed scientific literature. And this week, my friends, we picked a topic that uh, we might not be so familiar with. We deviated from our biology roots and today we'll be diving into the world of physics how do you feel about that jared terrified and excited at the same time good me too i hope some of our listeners feel the same and for those of you who have commented that we do too much biology and ignore the other sciences we're here for you today with physics and we're very I'm not sorry but here we are <laughs> yeah we're very excited to to hear um your corrections after we're done with this episode <laughs> No, but for real, I did work really hard on this, um, and I I tried to break it down as best I could, but as you all know, we're an itty-bitty baby plant of a podcast, and we're always looking for feedback to help us grow. So, you can reach us at podcast at scienceinpictures.com. That's our email address. You can also follow us on Instagram at science underscore in underscore podcast. And we're also on Facebook at Science and Podcast. We do monitor all of those messaging channels. So talk to us. We promise we don't bite. And even if we're lying, we can't bite you uh, virtually. So you're safe. Yeah, we're like a, uh, a frog that can't bite that much. In a reference that only means something to a very few people. Anyway, keep going. Yeah, we're like, we're like a frog that can't bite that much. That is exactly <laughs> what we <we're doing. laughs> um, Also, a big thank you to those of you who um, have been supporting this Toothless Frog, uh, that is a podcast. Um, thank you to everyone who has rated, reviewed, and subscribed to our podcast. That's how other people actually find this podcast so we can grow our, our community. So if you haven't left us a rating or a review yet, please do so. I do promise if someone does leave us a nice review, I will read it on air, including your name. So, you know, you can put a shout out to your grandma in it. I don't care. I'll read it. <laughs> Talk to us. I'm excited for um, that. We now have visitors in, uh, visitors, <laughs> we now have listeners from quite a few countries, including, Jared? Um, last we had Germany, the United Kingdom, um, all of Russia, I don't know where you are, but thank you person, um, and I think Brazil last time I checked too. Pretty exciting stuff. We love our international listeners, we love our national listeners, we love our listeners who are living off the grid, in fact, we love you most of all. Your secret's safe with us. Sure is. All right, so enough of that nonsense. <laughs> we already told you we'll be talking about physics today, so that's what this episode is going to be about. But of course, before we get into the science, we like to have a little fun. Uh, so Jared, will you step over here with me into our fun facts corner? I will. Give us a few right, seconds, now that We are in the corner. Hold on, I'm not there yet. Okay, go. Okay, he's in the corner. Do you have a fun fact? I do. Um, have you ever heard of a person named Robert Bunsen? Robert Bunsen. Did he make the burner? Uh, that's actually a fun fact in itself, is he didn't make the Bunsen burner. He just took a burner and added a, a adjustable nozzle to it. But So that's the guy we're talking about. It Robert is. Of the Bunsen burner. Yes. He was a legitimate crazy person uh, besides that, but he did a lot for uh, chemistry in terms of, like, speaking of moving from biology. But... For one thing, he invented or helped to invent the spectroscope, which basically 
every element emits these really specific forms of like wavelengths of light and he made the box that you can put like iron in and see the bands that it makes so that's really cool also he did a lot of experimenting with arsenic which is a very very toxic element some of the compounds he worked with um were so i guess accurate that they caused hallucinations in him and anyone that had the misfortune of working in his lab um he stopped working with arsenic when I'm reading a book and it was described as a careless explosion almost took out his right eye and left him half blind for the rest of his life. So yeah, you could say that he was an explosive guy. <laughs> I suppose you could. All right. So that's, that's a lot of facts about Robert Bunsen. I'm not sure if any of them were that fun. That's a general theme in my life. Very few of my facts are actually fun. And No, I'm just kidding. It was fun. I always <laughs> hear about toxins and poisons and explosions and guys named Bunsen. That's all, that's all good in my book. It's all the cool stuff about science. Yeah. So my fun fact has more to do with um, poop. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, our listeners probably know by now I have a cat named Jack. And um, I've actually been struggling with him for a couple weeks now because his poops are of the liquid variety. And I've been trying different foods. He's been to the vet three times. He's been on probiotics, all of these things until finally one day. Someone from my workplace told me, oh, why don't you just mix a spoonful of canned pumpkin into his wet food? See if that helps. So I did that two days ago, and voila, solid poops for Jack. <laughs> Ever since. I'm proud of Jack. Very proud. I, I'm so happy for everyone in my household, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so that's honestly, that is my fun fact this week, is did you know if your cat has the shits, you can be a pumpkin, and it'll fix it. <laughs> Since we're already about talking about poop, I guess I'll just say it. Um, if you have a lizard, uh, this should only apply to bearded dragons. I'm not going to say it applies to anything else because I don't want to kill anyone's pet. Um, so if, if you have a bearded dragon. Yes, um, and only that, unless you do your own research, but, you know, please do your own research. Um, if they are having a little trouble pooping, you can also give it 100% canned pumpkin, which is a natural bearded dragon laxative. So, um, for until I cleaned it, it was a bit of a mess, um, but in the same <laughs> way as Jack. Wow. Okay. So if you have a lizard, feed him pumpkin to make his, his poopy go. And yeah. if you have a cat, feed him pumpkin to make his poopy, just slow down that flow a little bit. Keep it under control. Keep it in the box. Yeah. Also, pumpkin is delicious and everyone should eat it. I'm, I'm sure nobody wants to hear about eating pumpkin in the same sentence that we're talking about pooping. You know, right. working in zoos for years, I'm just desensitized, man. I touch so much poop. We should probably stop talking about this. Poop. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so those are some pretty fun facts. Um, I have an additional thing that I'd like to tell you about. Okay. Um, and I'm so excited. I can barely contain myself because something very special came in the mail this week. And it is a little book called Lessons from Plants. Oh, you got the plant book. Mm-hmm. Bye. My personal hero. Dr. Baranda Montgomery. I love have you, her. Have you started it? I have not started it yet because I just got it. Um, but I'm really excited to start it. For those of you who don't know, we did a whole episode about Dr. Montgomery. Um, I believe that episode is called... Lessons in Equity from Unculturable Microbes, if yes. I remember correctly. Uh, that's, that's about right. Um, and we feature Dr. Montgomery's work. Um, which all has to do with what we can learn about uh, equity and diversity and bettering our institutions and our world 
from looking at tiny, tiny plants and learning from them. So it's a really, really cool concept. Really excited to read that book. And I bet you anything, my next 10 fun facts will be from Lessons from Plants. So get ready for a lot of Lessons from Plants, people. <laughs> like it. As I said before, I have big, uh, big time plant blindness and trying to get over that. But the mushroom book helped and this one probably will too. Yay, mushrooms. Yay, plants. You know what has nothing to do with mushrooms and plants? What's that? Physics. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to my article this week which comes to us from Eureka Alert via our dear, dear friend, Sandia Labs. Now, this is- that ring a bell? Rare open access quantum computer, now operational. Quantum computer. Yep. I feel like that's one of those buzzwords you always hear people reporting about, but I try really hard to grasp my head around technology. It doesn't ever work, so I haven't really looked into it yet. So this is all very, very terra incognita for me. Oh, dear Jared, you are not alone in that. Our jargon corner is quite a room. <laughs> <laughs> the gist of this article, before we dive into the jargon corner, um, this is about a really cool new quantum computer called QScout, which is an adorable name. Um, and it's a open access quantum computing testbed that is now ready for scientists from all over the world to use it in their research. And the best thing about it is that it is totally free and open access, which means anybody can use it um, to do their PhD work. Quantum computers are poised to become the next major technological drivers over the coming decades. So this is really exciting news for physicists of all kinds. Um, of course, if you don't know what quantum means or testbed or open access, you might be scratching your head right now, which is why we have jargon corner so let's uh let's take a stroll over to the door please corner. please do a little bit of a long walk from this way i turn left and another left and here we are hold on i took a right oh okay. come on catch up jared <laughs> all right two left feet <clears throat> so the first piece of jargon that i would like you to take a crack at defining is the word quantum oh it, god it quantum means quantum it's like doesn't it have something to do with like the state that a type of matter can be like if it's in like quantum mode and i also think it has something to do with the fact that if you look at something it behaves differently from a quantum perspective i think i've heard that before but i don't even know how to start to define it besides it's like it's a certain state of being all right, right? yeah you know you're you're circling around it pretty good um so quantum and its simplest is just a latin word that means amount Oh. But quantum in this context is the smallest possible discrete unit of any physical property. So energy or matter. It's the smallest unit of measurement. So a quantum computer would be like a super duper tiny computer? Not exactly. But don't worry, quantum computer is also on the jargon list. We're just not there yet. Thank God. Okay. <laughs> we'll build to that. Um, so a little bit more about where quantum came from, what exactly it means. We know it's a unit of measurement for energy or matter. In fact, the teeny tiniest unit of measurement. Um, but why and what do you mean by that? Well, here we go. It all has to do with a certain physicist named Max Planck. Ever heard of him? Yeah, he has an institute, I think. He, he, he might. Um, I mean, he, he was at his height in 1900, but okay. 
Well, there's one named after him is what I mean. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the German Physical Society? Probably. So he was looking at radiation, and he was real confused because he was seeing that radiation from a glowing body changes in color from red, then orange, and then blue as it gets hotter. And so this is like body in scientific terms. It's not like a living body. That's correct. Okay. Yes, not a human body. Just a thing. Body means thing. Because <laughs> you said glowing body changing colors. I was like, I hope that's not a living thing. <laughs> no. Well, no. A glowing, I mean a flame. Yeah. Well, so he found, so he made this assumption that goes against the assumptions of the time. And that assumption was that radiation, which heat is a form of radiation, existed in discrete units in the same way that matter does, rather than just a constant electromagnetic wave, which is what everyone else thought at the time. So if you think about, you know, let's say colors, they exist on a spectrum. This guy, Planck, was like, but what if there are some instances when they're, that they're detached from that spectrum and they only exist at a certain time and place, like a click. Is this like the same concept as like a superconductor? Like at only like a super duper duper low temperature, does the conductance drop to zero kind of thing? Exactly. Yeah. Okay, cool. So it's, it's this idea that even though for the most part, things like radiation exist on a spectrum, on a wave, there are some conditions in which that changes. And that's where quantum comes in. Okay. Yeah. So he wrote this mathematical equation, which I'm not going to read to you because this is a <laughs> podcast. <laughs> um, but it represents these individual units of energy. And those units, the small units of energy that he was treating like particles, he called quanta. And so that's how we got the word quantum as a unit of measurement. Um, and all of this was happening around the same time that Einstein came up with his theory of relativity, and also at the same time that quantum theory came together. Which brings that's, us... That's like black hole stuff, right? Oh, no, that's relativity. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the relativity is E equals mc squared. We all know that one. Yeah. But what do you know about quantum theory? I, my first thing was like, that's black holes, but that was literally predicted by relativity, so never mind. Yep, relativity um, is black holes. Quantum yeah. theory is a, a beast of another color. Isn't, is that the being two places at once kind of thing? Yes, it is. Oh, cool. Okay. Yes. Incredible. Okay. So keep that in mind, listeners, being in two places at once or doing two things at the same time. That's sort of what quantum mechanics or quantum theory is all about in a nutshell. So quantum mechanics is something that Mr. Planck did not come up with all on its own. He was one of the scientists that sort of sparked this idea, but quantum mechanics developed over many decades, actually, and it was very controversial for the majority of its beginnings um, because it set to answer a bunch of controversial mathematical explanations and experiments that classical mechanics, what everyone thought at the time, what the smartest people in the world thought at the time, it contradicted all of that. Those are my favorite moments in science, though, is the term where the, it, the, whole, the whole paradigm just shifts on its head. Um, have you ever heard of Lynn Margulis? About who? Lynn Margulis, if that's how you say her name. No. Um, she was one of the first people to propose the idea that things like the mitochondria inside our cells and the chloroplast inside plants were basically an ancient event of some microorganism consuming another one, but it survived, which was actually proven by the fact that both mitochondria and the chloroplast have their own separate DNA. 
So she didn't have the technology to prove it when she was still writing her papers, but she was totally right about a lot of the things she talked about. Not all of them, hey. but she was right about a lot of it. That's cool. Love her. Yeah. Oh my God, now I need to look her up. She did become a 9-11 truther at the end of her life, which was a bit weird, but scientific Oh, no. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> but... <laughs> Okay, well, back to <clears throat> back to quantum mechanics then. <laughs> quantum mechanics can be boiled down to three revolutionary principles. The first one is quantized properties. So, certain properties, properties including things like position, speed, and color. Those ooh, ooh, so superposition. Huh? So superposition is being two places at once. That's the word for it, right? That's or... correct. Okay, cool. Yeah, superposition is, uh, yeah, being in two places at once. Um, so the idea of quantized properties is that certain properties, such as position or speed or color, can sometimes only occur in specific set amounts. So I said that's sort of like a click earlier. And the way that I said that is basically sometimes these properties work like a dial that clicks from number to number instead of like a sliding scale. Oh, so like you need like just like the smallest amount of resistance to bring it to that next level. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So this challenge, something that was fundamental at the time, which of course is that idea of all properties being smooth and continuous on a spectrum. Um, so to, to describe that the idea that these properties sometimes would exit that smooth spectrum and start clicking into the specific settings... These scientists started using the word quantized to describe that clicking. So the second revolutionary principle, other than quantification, quantized, clicking, is that there can be particles of light. Hold on. So light's acting like a physical matter piece? Yeah. Light can sometimes behave as a particle. It can bend is one of the things. So... This idea was met with a lot of criticism for about 200 years because um, light also behaves much like a wave. Um, it ripples and all of that, but it also can bounce off of walls. It can have crests and troughs. And a light source can basically be thought of as sort of a ball on a stick being <laughs> rhythmically dipped into the center of a lake. And the color emitted corresponds to the distance between the little waves, the little crests of the wave. Oh. And that's determined by the ball's rhythm. So those are our clicks, our crests of the wave. I'm seeing it in my head. That's a fun image. Yeah. So light, although you can't touch it, you can't grab it or manipulate it, it does have some sort of physical property. But it's basically physical and non-physical at the same time. Are we talking about photons? <laughs> electrons no like photons like yeah particles. like photons okay yeah and then the other revolutionary principle the third one is the idea that matter can also behave as a wave <laughs> so light can behave as a particle matter can behave as a wave and i love this because i love it whenever boxes are broken and lines start to blur <laughs> This broke my heart a little bit hearing that, but that's only yeah. because I'm very rigid generally. Uh, that's a cool, that's that's really, really cool to know. Yeah, so quantum is basically things happening all at once, so fast, so little, and so counterintuitively 
that they're almost impossible to measure and impossible to prove. Enter quantum computing. So you mentioned that scientist earlier who was basically talking about things before she had the ability to prove them, right? Mm -hmm. So quantum computers come into the picture as a way to actually show and prove that quantum theory is real, that they were right about this stuff. So that's what our article focuses on, is a very specific type of quantum computer that is now available for everyone to do any kind of research they want for free. Is this the kind of thing that kind it like plugs in, you plug in numbers and then like, like a lot of equations work or like how, how, how? A little bit, Jared, a little okay. bit. Sit a spell. Let me tell you a story. This is already blowing my mind. So quantum computing is an area of computing or computer stuff that is focusing on developing computer technology based on the principles of quantum theory in order to show that they exist. So that's all about the behavior of energy and material on the atomic and subatomic levels, the really, really tiny level. So here's the difference between a classical computer and a quantum computer. Classical computers, like the one I'm using right now to record this podcast, um, encodes information in bits that take the value of one or zero. You know what that's called? Binary? Yeah, binary. Modern computers, most of them communicate with binary code. Now that's great, it can get a lot of stuff done, but it does restrict their ability in some areas. So instead of using binary, the values of zero and one, quantum computing uses quantum bits, which are called quibits. <laughs> I like that word. Um, so instead of like theoretical numbers one and two, quibits are actually physically made using physical systems. So like the spin of an electron or the orientation of a photon, that's something that could create a quibit, which is the quantum computer's unit of computing. Here's the thing about the spin of an electron or the orientation of a photon. It does that thing you were talking about, Jared, where it has superposition. These quibits and these systems can be in many different arrangements all at the same time. So that's called quantum superposition. So this is so cool. So this is like I know. <laughs> so based if I'm reading this right, this is kind of like a computer that creates the situations where quantum happenings are going to happen. It sure does. Yeah. Holy crap. You can study them in real time. Wow. Okay. Jesus. Yeah. So in addition to these quibits being able to be in multiple places at once, quantum superposition. Um, all of these different arrangements can also be linked together in countless different ways using another phenomenon called quantum entanglement. So this is when, it's kind of like, if we're talking like comic book language, it's when like two universes are kind of shoving their way into the, the other one? Or no? It could be kind of like that, yeah. Okay. Or it could be one series of quibits, one shape, one organization representing a million different universes and operating in them at the same time. How is that even possible? <laughs> now that is the kind of question I will need our physicist listeners to answer. Email us, science, 
in podcast. Anyway. I want to know all that you know. <laughs> this is the best I can explain it to you, like, the difference about what these different computers can do. No, so, you're doing good. This is just such a huge concept, like... Oh, well, thanks. I, I am trying. Uh, physics is definitely a weakness of mine. I don't even know right and left. I don't know where I am in space, much less what's going on in the atoms inside of me, but I'm learning. Ooh. Your left hand is the one that makes an L between your pinky. Yeah, I know, Jared, but I'm dyslexic. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Do you know how long as a child I spent just looking at, making two L's, one with each hand, and just looking at them like, oh, God, oh, God, I don't know. <laughs> and then I was also ambidextrous, so I couldn't figure it out by writing, like, which hand oh, I could... No. Like, it was, until I was, like, 12 or 13, this was, like, my Achilles heel. <laughs> I retract my statement. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, physics <laughs> is hard. But here's the thing about quantum computing. Um, for a classical computer, 8 bits, or pieces of binary, is enough to represent any number between 0 and 255. I don't know why, but that is a fact, apparently. <clears throat> By contrast, eight qubits, the, the non-binary version, the quantum version, is enough for a quantum computer to represent every number between 0 and 25 at the same time in the same place. <laughs> now, wow. it, don't stop there, because that's with eight qubits. If you have a few hundred qubits entangled, like we were talking about, that would be enough to represent more numbers at the same time than there are atoms in the universe. <laughs> so this is basically a way to store unlimited data also, is what it sounds like. Not exactly or store, but it's a way to uh, get through like really, really complex mathematical problems much, much quicker. Um, basically, if there are situations where there's a huge number of possible combinations. Oh, um, oh! Yeah. Sorry, yeah, just so, clicked. Yeah, the quantum computer can consider all of those points of view at the same time. So it's, it's like the person taking like the limitless pill and then they're working on all the equations at the same time and then they're at the right Exactly, point. yeah, no, that's, wow. that is, yeah, that is the, if you've seen limitless, then you understand a little bit about quantum theory. <laughs> oh my God. So here are some things um, that quantum computers are really good at, um, super useful for. For one, artificial intelligence. Because they think like a person does more than a computer would? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> this gets to the point where like, I know that these, these areas are much benefited by quantum computing, but I am not smart enough to explain to you why. <laughs> any consolation, I'm not either. All right. <clears throat> so artificial intelligence is a really great avenue for quantum computing. Also, molecular modeling. Oh, that yeah. makes sense. Be so looking really, really close at different chemical reactions or the possibilities that diff different chemical reactions could have. Because, like, depending on, like, the stuff around or the energy level or, like, even, like, the, what amount of what it could be totally different so it could just account for all of that simultaneously exactly every possible situation he's got it unlocked that quantum computer um yeah, another, quantum. another <laughs> area that quantum computers are extremely useful in is cryptography any idea what cryptography is 
I'm thinking Mothman, but it's probably not Mothman. <laughs> it's code breaking. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that one just makes sense. I mean, if you can look at every single possible number in the universe in like a split second, you could probably crack a code pretty fast with a quantum computer. If I was in control of that, though, I would probably uh, lock my phone out of myself faster than I could even blink. But, you know, I'm not a computer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is financial modeling, um, which is another area. This is this, a conflation of areas I know nothing about. Finances and physics together, I'm not sure, but apparently they're best friends. <laughs> <laughs> you know money's rectangle for a reason physics um <clears throat> yeah so like modern markets are some of the most complicated systems in existence i would agree with that um this is from an article from singularity hub by the way um and so investors and analysts are looking at quantum computing as a way um oh god what are they doing with it something about this the stonks and the investors, listen, I don't know, but they're doing it. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Here's something I know a little more about, weather forecasting. Oh. Yeah, so we all know weather. There's a ton of different things that a system could do at any moment. Weather is something we have a really hard time predicting. Um, quantum computing can allow weather predictors to look at many, many, many different situations um, in much less time than normal. And that gives the humans working with these computers much more time to develop plans for if any of these situations occur. That makes sense. So they have all their uh, plan B, C, and D in their back pocket, even though- Exactly. The quantum computer spits them out in like half a second, and then they can spend all of their human power figuring out what to do for the people who would be affected. That's awesome. Yeah. And then, of course, the last area in which quantum computing is very useful is particle physics, which just makes sense because that's what it's all about, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. So that's quantum computers. Um, so that's our jargon corner. Congrats if you got through it. <laughs> now let's talk a little bit more about this specific quantum computer who has been adorably nicknamed G-Scout. I like how you're calling it a who. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, I feel like... Computer? I'm going to call it a who. I don't know. Q-Scout. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. Zazen. It separates uh, it from QAnon. Any idea what Q-Scout scans for? Quantum something. Is Scout an acronym? It is an acronym, and quantum is the first word. Quantum secret cave out under... Terrace. Um, no, but I'm interested. <laughs> <laughs> if I if I was ever given a note, like slipped into into my hand that said that, I would absolutely go under the terrace and find out what was going on in that quantum secret cave. Oh, I'd be looking for treasure immediately. However, Q Scout actually stands for quantum scientific computing open user testbed. Well, that makes more sense. Yeah. So this project, the creation of QScout, was led by an amazing female scientist. Her name is Dr. Susan Clark. She works at Sandia Laboratories, and she worked on this project in collaboration with a team of physicists, quantum computing theorists, engineers, computer scientists, a lot of people. And then on the theory side of things, um, 
She also worked with a scientist named Peter Love from Tufts University, right by us. Oh, cool. Yeah. And Ken Brown from Duke University, which is my mom's alma mater. Go Duke. That name also rings a bell. <laughs> so those two provided theory support. Q-Scout is going to be great for the quantum community because in the words of our friend Dr. Susan Clark, QScout serves a need in the quantum community by giving its users the controls to study the machine itself, which aren't yet available in commercial quantum computing systems. It also saves theorists and scientists from the trouble of building their own machines. We hope to gain new insights into quantum performance and architecture, as well as solve problems that require quantum computation. That's really cool. It also seems like a huge step forward for just kind of open science and accessibility in general. I am so glad you brought that up because Susan Clark, Dr. Susan Clark, is extremely proud of QScout for three reasons. And number one is what you just said. It is a totally free open access testbed. Now here we have a little bit more jargon. What does open access mean? Open access means that basically you have access to all the code, right? Exactly. It means you have free access to everything there, all of the information, and unrestricted use of the electronic resources for everyone. So that's great. Talk about opening up science, you know, making it more yeah, accessible, seriously. which is what we're all about. That's also what she's all about. Um, now, what is a test bed? I was hoping uh, you would let me slide on that. A test but uh, it's somewhere where you work on your car, but in this case, a computer program and sometimes a computer itself. That was bad. It's somewhere anyway, you me. can work on a thing. <laughs> Thank you for saving me. <laughs> it is a platform for conducting rigorous, transparent, and replicable testing of scientific theories, computational tools, and new technologies. Does so that mean everyone can see what you're doing like, the whole time? It's basically like the open access version of a lab. Interesting, but like yeah. shared across virtual space. Exactly. So this computer, you don't have to be there in person to use it. Oh, sh uh, sh oh, sh right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So that's cool. Yeah. It seems like a really big step. It's like an open access virtual laboratory that is also this incredible computer. Um, so that's the first thing she's really excited about about. Scout, which I'm also very excited about. If I had anything that I wondered about that a quantum computer could help me with, I would run there um, right now because actually they're currently accepting applications for new studies that they can Ooh. take to use this test bed. So if we do have any quantum physicists listening, uh, check out this test bed. Just Google QScout. You'll find it. <laughs> that's, that's, um, that's, yeah. Yeah. And um, if you're not sold yet, the second incredible thing about QScout, it's made with trapped ion technology. Mm -hmm. well, that sounds kind of mean, but I know ions don't really have emotion, so I guess I don't feel too bad about Do it. Do not anthropomorphize the ions, Jared. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I reject that Speaking statement. of, what is an ion? An ion is kind of like when you put soup in a microwave. It gains a lot of energy and it gets really hot and steamy. An ion is... Oh, wait, no, that's a... What am I thinking of? So and ion is a yeah, and ion's a charged particle. <laughs> I guess I should have just said that. <laughs> a charged particle. Yeah. So if you think about an atom, the tiniest unit of matter, um, an ion is an atom or a molecule, group of atoms, 
um, that has an electric charge. And the way it gets an electric charge is by losing or gaining an electron. So generally an atom has a set number of electrons, but then there's other atoms around that might want to steal them or give them. So if an electron, or I mean, if an atom that usually has, let's say two electrons bumps into one that just loves to share and then gets a third electron, it becomes charged because of those extra electrons. Yeah, for instance, oxygen usually exists, I think, as just kind of double bonded, no, not double bonded, but like two oxygens next to each other. And I think that's a negatively charged molecule. There you go. I don't know if that's true, but- I'm gonna uh, delete that. That probably doesn't happen. Yell at Jared, not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so ions are um, they're a little unstable, but here's the great thing about being unstable. It means you're full of possibilities. <laughs> yeah. Um, so trapped ion technology means taking these ions, these charged particles, and confining them and suspending them in free space using an electromagnetic field. Wow. So, yeah. And then harnessing the energy that they release? Not exactly. So actually, it's the qubits that harness their untapped energy, which right. I kind of have like, you know, Schrodinger's energy. It's both there and not there. Full of potential, oh. like I said. Okay, so I think I get it now. The way that qubits are sort of created or stored, or both, um, is they take the ion that's suspended and then they can store the qubit in the stable electronic state of each ion. Oh, wow. So then the quantum information can be transferred through the collective quantumized motion of the ions in a shared trap. I. Okay, I follow what you're saying. I just can't put it into words. Okay, so by a shared trap, I mean a trap that uses the Coulomb force, which is a that... fancy word that means the attraction or repulsion of particles or objects because of their electric charge. So like, you know how two magnets will touch each other on one end and love it, and on the other end, they're like, no! <laughs> yes. That's the Coulomb force. So that's sort of the space that these qubits are traveling in, and that's how they share information. So this is a little bit unrelated, but it also makes me think about kind of like the open science thing in general. And I think a good sign that that's working is the fact that people aren't really naming phenomena after themselves anymore, which I always thought was a little bit cheesy. Yes, yes, yeah. I agree. We don't need mm -hmm. to call it the Coulomb force. Who's Coulomb? No one cares. Sorry, Coulomb, yeah. you're probably great. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> But that's the problem, isn't it? No one knows. It's much easier for people to access science when you name things based on what they do or what they are instead of the person who first figured it out. That's how I yeah. feel. It's a lot more less sticky that way. Exactly. Less pretentious and more accessible, which is what we're all about here. Anyway. <laughs> um, okay. So... Here's where the lasers come in. <laughs> uh, that's fun. I like lasers. So we have these qubits transmitting information across these, these Coulomb forces, across these magnetic uh, free spaces. And then in order to make them do the thing where they do everything at once, you take a laser and you apply that laser to induce coupling between these different qubit states. So... You take one qubit operation going on in one magnetic dance and you use a laser to connect it to another one and then another one and then another one. 
And that's how you get entanglement between these qubits. With lasers. <laughs> With lasers. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So is it, yeah. I'm, I'm asking a lot of physics questions and I'm sorry, but I, I just have them. Um, do you only shine the laser on one and that sort of induces it a couple to other ones or? That is something I have no clue about. Yeah. <laughs> I don't either. That's. Okay, the we'll lasers induce the coupling. They do a great job. We're very happy to have them. We don't ask questions. Fair enough. <laughs> Just kidding. Like, obviously scientists ask questions, but the, the point is, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> You're in for a double whammy for me. I don't know how normal computers work either, so not set up for success. <laughs> Like, feel free to ask me all the questions you have. Just know that I'm not the expert here. If any physics experts want to come on the podcast and clear up any nonsense we're creating, we would love to have you. Props to you for picking an article so far out of your comfort zone, though. Thank you. Thank you. Here, this is the podcast where we compliment Madison on taking risks. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, back to Q-Scout, the real star of the show. All right, so we know QScout provides an absolutely exceptional research opportunity. Um, but the thing about this negative, or no, sorry, this trapped ion technology um, is that it allows them to open it up to a lot more people to do a lot more work because the ion trap technology means they can use a lot less energy, which we love. We love using less energy. So here's the best way I can explain it to you. So most commercial test beds, most quantum computers of the past, the near past, use a technology called superconducting circuits. You might have heard of a superconductor before. That's what they used in um in the documentary about the the Higgs boson. Yeah, it's it's kind of like I think hydrogen can be a superconductor at like really, really, really low low temperatures, but basically there's exactly. no loss of energy yeah. from moving at the place. So place. superconductors are cool, but they require a ton of space. Like yeah. the one in that documentary is like the size of a football field. And the entire circuit, the entire superconductor needs to be kept at ultra low temperatures, like hundreds of degrees below zero. <laughs> and so it takes a lot of energy to maintain that. The iron trap does not take nearly as much energy. It can run at much warmer temperatures. It yields clearer signals. Uh, it holds on to information longer. And it lets you perform more than one type of experience at once using the same platform. At the same time, you can do all of that. That's And once again, I, I can tell you all of these things that the trapped ion conductor can do. I cannot tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's the best I've got. Um, but the trapped ions that are in Q-Scout, if you want to picture it, they're in a, what they call in quotations, a trap on a chip. Delicious. <laughs> so it's a little flat device and it's shaped like a little bow tie and oh. it's less than an inch long. It's two centimeters. So it's like just shy of an inch. So like a fingernail sized. And then that's overlaid on a semiconductor chip. No idea what that is. Whatever. And then add to this little bow tie three electrically charged atoms of the element ytterbium. Yeah, let me describe ytterbium to you. It's really cute. Um, so it is a soft, malleable, and ductile chemical element that is bright and silvery and lustry. Um, it's really rare to be found in the earth. 
It's really easily dissolved by strong acids and it reacts really slowly with cold water and oxidizes really slowly with air. So if you look at it, it basically just looks like extra shiny silver or almost oh. like aluminum foil. Cool. It sounds very poisonous yeah. as well. Oh, yeah. Don't touch it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but they use euterbium, and I, I don't know why they chose exactly that um, that element. I couldn't I, I tried to dig, but I couldn't figure out why. But anyway, it must that's be because of like just some specific properties it has. Yeah, definitely. Um, so they take only three, three atoms of euterbium. Like, guys, how do I explain how small an atom is? Isn't it enough to say that like even when you're literally have your hand on someone else's hand, they're still not touching, even though you can feel it, like your body registers it touching, but you're still not touching if we're thinking of the space of atoms. That is a great way to describe it. So yeah, listeners, if you want to know how small an atom is, take your hand and put push it down as hard as you can on the nearest flat surface. No matter how hard you push and how even if you break the table, the surface of whatever you're pushing on, there is a layer of atoms between your hand and that thing. Your body just thinks there isn't because that yeah. makes more sense to us. They're like infinitesimally tiny. So somehow these scientists are able to take three atoms of euterbium. And then they suspend them in place with uh, an electric field of radio waves called a hairline channel that runs down the center of the device, right through the, the, the bow tie. So we got these three little atoms suspended in that Coulomb for force, um, that you know magnets not liking each other force. Then lasers come in. They encode information on each atom. Like imagine taking a little pencil and writing on an atom. So, kind of like how you can use a laser to read CDs, this is kind of like the laser has the info. Yes. So, right? the laser encodes the information in each ion, and each piece of information is a qubit, and then they can perform calculations. Somehow. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that this works in practice is amazing to me. Isn't it crazy? And it all happens on just such a tiny level. Like, it really is the little things, guys. It's the little things. Just to throw in another uh, bit of thing as well, atoms are mostly empty space themselves. So you have this big thing, just this such, such a small distance, but even an atom is mostly not an atom. It's just empty space with balls of whatever proton, neutron, electrons, and electrons floating around. It's, fu it's um, fun and also existentially... Um, uh, yeah, whenever yeah. we talk about how atoms are mostly empty space, then I always immediately make the connection to our solar system, which is also mostly empty space. And hurtling through space. Look at the, the models that we have of understanding an atom, and then the models we have of understanding the solar system, and they look alike, and then my brain explodes. The third reason Q-Scout is the bestest is that the people who created it wanted to give anyone who uses it the ultimate amount of control over their own research. So they're taking research projects from all over. Um, the first researchers that used uh, QScout were from Indiana University. Uh, and then there were researchers from IBM and then Oak Ridge National Laboratory, University of New Mexico, the University of California, Berkeley. Um, and now they're opening it up to the rest of the world as well. So if anybody has something they'd like to test with a quantum computer, get in there. Um, because you can do projects 
from things like uh, benchmarking techniques to develop algorithms to solve problems in chemistry. You can do AI work. You can you can really do a lot of really cool stuff with QScout. Stuff cooler and more complex than I can probably describe to you. I think um, I would do it just to ride the high of performing multiple activities at the same time. Like my brain has always wanted to do, but uh, random fun fact, you can't multitask. Your brain just switches really, really quickly. That's Yeah, really... QScout is basically what everyone with ADHD wishes their brain was, including me. I want to use this computer even though I would probably break it. So like, I would this computer allow me to finish a sentence without, you know, telling three different stories in the middle of it? I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> Look for any studies about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I just want to give a quick shout out before we end the episode um, to the people who made it possible for QScout to be free and open access to everyone. So, of course, um, Sandia Laboratory is one of them. Um, and then they got funding from the DOE, Department of Energy, Office of Science. Thanks, government. Uh, the Advanced Scientific Computing Research Program. And their next group of products projects is expected to be selected in the spring so get in there scientists write those applications books not impressed yet by what i told you um so right now q scout has uh three qubits three atoms if you will but over the next three years sandia plans to expand the system from three to 32 qubits oh so that's a lot more scenarios yeah. So more and more sophisticated, strange, real smart people testing is coming. Um, and if you're wondering where on earth this computer lives, it's at Sandia's Microsystems Engineering Science and Applications Complex. Um, and Sandia is actually mostly a organization concerned with national defense. They do microelectronics and uh, nuclear energy. So that's what they're up to. Yeah. But that's kind of the whole thing, isn't it? Like a lot of the solutions that we come up to for one problem can easily be just slightly tweaked to fit another one. Yeah, exactly. So that is the article I brought you this week. Wow. I'm still chewing on most of that, but holy crap. Yeah. Physics, man. Physics, man. There it is. So yeah, that's QScout, the amazing new quantum computer that's free and accessible to everyone, thanks to some incredible scientists, including... One lovely, lovely female physicist named Susan Marie Clark. She has a very, very, like, history person sounding name. I feel like she's going to be very, very important in the coming years. She seems like a really cool person. Like, from what I've looked at, she seems like someone you could just, like, sit down and, like, have a beverage with and learn so much. Um, she's been working with Sandia National Laboratories since 2013. Um, she's always working on quantum information projects, um, trapped ions, gate to find quantum dots in silicon, whatever that means. <laughs> um, and she's all about open access, which, as you talked about a little bit in one of our previous episodes, is a big movement that needs more people in it. Um, she's also worked at the Joint Quantum Institute at University of Maryland. Um, and she graduated with a PhD and master's in applied physics from Stanford in 2010. So she's pretty young. Wow. Yeah. Me sitting here with my one bachelor's degree. <laughs> Jeez. I know, right? I'm like, hi, I have a bachelor of fine arts. 
Uh, <laughs> well, go her at any rate. Yeah, super cool. How do we end this? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's here's a fun question. Jared, if you woke up one day and Q Scout was right in front of you and Q Scout said, do whatever you want to me. <laughs> what would you ask Q Scout to tell you? I would ask Q Scout. My immediate thought is to like go to grilled cheese. So I would probably use Q Scout to find the best possible reality of the grilled cheese I could make in that moment. Ooh, like the perfect temperature, the exact right cheese from the exact right region, the type of bread. So that like you get the crunch, but it doesn't make your gums bleed and it doesn't burn your mouth, but it's still really hot. Yeah, I'm a little lazier than that. So it would probably just be like make the best of the ingredients I have because I don't want to go shopping right now. Um, but yes. <laughs> fair. That's very fair. I mean, because if you didn't give Q Scout those parameters, Q Scout would be like, you need to go to this region of France at this time of the year to get this cheese, then put it in a center and keep it at exactly, I don't know what Q-Scout would say, but you're right, it'd probably be pretty complicated, because it'd yeah. be legit. Dipped right in the River Rhine. Yeah. <laughs> if Q-Scout was in front of me, and I could ask it any question, I would probably ask Q-Scout to tell me the age of all of the rocks that I have in my room. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I also yeah. want to know about a lot of the fossils that I bought from shady people. I want to know, I want, like, the Ancestry.com, like, rundown for every single one of my rocks. I want to know where it's from. I want to know where it's been. I want to know how it was created. Well, just be careful, because it could also give you stuff all your rocks, like, everything it could do in the future. And that might not be info that you want to know, because what if it's to, like, kill you or anything? What I mean... your rocks are going to murder you? But what if my rocks are going to make a new planet someday? Well, I guess I want to know that. Yeah, all right. Again, I retract my statement. I want to know the past, present, and future of all my rocks. Rock. All right, listeners. Let us know. You can DM us. You can <laughs> DM us on Instagram, science underscore in underscore podcast. We're out there. You can message us using Facebook Messenger on the Facebook. We are Science in Podcast on Facebook. You can also email us at podcast at symbol scienceandpictures.com and we would love to hear from you. If Q Scout floated into your life right now, what would you ask it to do for you? Super curious. And of course, from last week, also please let us know uh, what animal you'd least like to be killed by. Thank you. And good night. Oh, yeah. It's still Megadero. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, guys. Um, seriously, this is uh, really, really fun to do every week. And uh, yeah. We have fun doing it. So thank you. We're for learning. Reading. We're stretching. We're growing. Our tiny little seedling of a podcast just grew a new leaf and it has the word physics inscribed on it with a laser. <laughs> One could say we found the right fungus partner. Heck yeah. All right. Yeah. Think we should say All bye? Right. No. <laughs> <laughs>